All right, now as we take up this morning, we've already sort of looked at this early section of Acts chapter 6, but there we had focused in on sort of the problems that had arisen and it, how it had been murmuring and how the saints would have been better off instead of murmuring and complaining and letting those complaints get back to the apostles, would have been far better off when they had concern and issue of just going straight to them and voicing their concern instead of letting it degrade into murmuring. But as we see what happens here, we, we begin to see a clearly established pattern in the functioning of the early church. Now, one of the things I want us to begin to note here is that in the early church, the apostles themselves are the first elders in the church at Jerusalem. Now, even when I say that, I know that that doesn't always make sense to anyone because depending on your church background, you're thinking, elders, what does this mean? And so, that, again, wanting to make this as clear as possible. Now, I cannot necessarily articulate and, and show you everything today, but I want to begin to establish a clarity from the scriptures, much of which the foundation is laid in these passages. We're going to see moving forward. That the churches, each church is going to have appointed in each of them a number of elders. T Titus will be sent later to go back to the churches that have been planted by Paul and Barnabas, Paul and Silas, to appoint elders in all of the churches. Now, some of your minds might be saying this Did they not have pastors? So they simply had elders and not pastors, and that's part of the problem. We are so prone to use specific language and terminology that is, is replete within our culture that we've not paid close attention at times to what the scriptures actually say. Strangely enough, if you were to use the old King James Version, you would see that the word pastor is used in that version, but not in many other translations today. Now, though the word pastor is used there, that same Greek word is translated many times in the King James, but they don't translate it pastor in most places. They translate it shepherd, which is why some of the newer translations seeking consistency says that God has appointed in the church shepherds and teachers because it speaks of their role and responsibility rather than necessarily of an office or, or position per se. So I want us to begin to, to, to see how this unfolds because we work in, depending on your church background, oftentimes we've got sort of a view of some kind of hierarchy and it works different in different places. Sometimes it's the pastor who's the kingpin. And then beneath him, maybe you have a board of deacons. And then maybe beneath them, you have a board of trustees who take care of other practical things. That's similar to the church that I grew up in. Now, some churches function in that same pattern, but they have the kingpin. And then they have a board of elders. And then they have a board of deacons. And the deacons serve over the practical things. And the elders over the spiritual things. And the pastor is the boss, so to speak, of them in many patterns. In newer patterns that are emerging at times, uh, pastors come and go within congregational context. And so the church is run by the board of elders and the pastor isn't the man in charge. He's the hired communicator. You know, he's, he's the main marketing officer of the church. And so all those kinds of, of notions get caught up. And so we, we, get, we get our ideas. If any of you ever happen to find yourself in a seminary situation where you're studying for ministry, you will have to take courses on ecclesiology, which is the doctrine of the church. And it's astounding because the way it usually works is they will present, these are the different patterns of church government that take place today. There is the Episcopal form, and they'll describe that, and they'll say that's rooted in this particular Greek word, episkopos. There is also a congregational form of government, and they'll, and they'll go through, there's a Presbyterian form of government, where you have presbyteros, and they'll begin to define each one of them. They'll use a biblical word, episkopos, 
presbyteros. And then from the biblical word, they will jump to the man-organized system that has latched onto that as their key word. And so basically what you end up doing is you end up learning, well, these people do this, and these people do this, and these people do that. And then usually the school itself will be from a particular background, and they will say, but this is how we do it. And then they continue to promote the same thing that's happened generation after generation after generation without necessarily thinking through why we do what we do. Now, further than that, it's, it's interesting. Some dear men love to, and, and it's not uncommon, if you read books on ecclesiology, which I doubt you do, I get it. But if you do read them, it's not uncommon for those men to say something like this. The scriptures do not give us a clear indication of how the church should be ordered. And so blah, 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 blah. Now, one of the reasons why they say that is because they're really secretly saying, we can't really find biblical grounds for what we do. So here's the best solution. The uh, Bible doesn't tell us clearly. Huh. See, now we're free then to do it our own way. To do it according to our own thoughts. And, uh, you know, that is something I firmly disagree with. I think the scriptures lay out a wonderfully clear order and instruction. Nothing is missing. The challenge is it's just not what we expected. I remind you of those powerful words in both Proverbs 14.12 as well as Proverbs 16.25 where God's word says this, there is a way that seems right to man, but its end is destruction or the way of death. So in the end, when, as, as we contemplate how we ought to do things, I think there's great wisdom in not trusting what comes out of here. Because there's a way that's going to seem right to men, which happens to be all men, even men in church positions. It's not a question of what seems right to us. It is a question of what accords with the word of God. Now, so that principle is going to prevail. Today, we're going to primarily look at the establishment of early church order. But that principle is one that goes across all areas. What we are to believe about baptism. What we're to believe about the Lord's Supper. What we're to believe about uh, uh, congregational worship and practice. What we're to be, Every function, every aspect, every part of life, every part of the church ought to seek to find good and faithful grounding in the scriptures. My dear brother once uh, shared with me this week how he received a message from a pastor friend of his who was saying that some people left his church and he asked them why. And one of the big reasons why is they really love responsive reading. And in the and the, that church didn't have responsive reading and they want responsive reading. So they're going someplace where they can have what they want. It's like, you know, this is a there's a serious danger in that. And again, it, it, it's plays out we want to go somewhere that gives us what we want brothers and sisters don't trust what you want because there's a way that seems right to us there's a way that appeals to us and i tell you in the broader context you can never satisfy a singular individual you know some people are convinced the spirit is only present if there's a pipe organ you know uh, or, 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 or it goes differently. And, and some people like a, a lot of, of deep, intensive liturgy. And then on the other side of the spectrum, you have people who like everything to be kept very casual and, 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 and simple. And everything should be light and trivial. And every preacher should wear skinny jeans. And, you know, and you've got, you've got all these various ends of the spectrum all of which insist on particular things. You know, some might say, how dare a man preach without a tie? You know, or a, or a suit coat and so on. And yeah, I ask you, how frequently you think Jesus wore a tie? Or a suit coat? 
Those, those things weren't. We, we begin to press into things. Often what comes, the baggage we bring with us from whatever our church, church backgrounds. Whatever we have received from those backgrounds that benefited us with regard to truth, let us cling to the truth of those. But let us be careful not to be caught captive by all the peripheral things and traditions rooted in men rather than in the scriptures. And so we want to try to work this out. I want to establish for you how the early church, the apostles were the first elders. Now, how, one of the interesting things is this. This was going to be a large church. From day one of Pentecost, how many were converted? 3,000. That's a few more than would fit in this room. Right? It, it, and so, from day one, you need a good group. Shortly thereafter, that number is going to swell from three to 5,000. So you need a, a significant number of elders to look after and attend to that. And in the perfect wisdom of God, he established that there would be 12 of them at the very beginning who would be together shouldering this duty and carrying out this task. Again, it's important to note, not one above the other, but all serving together. Not a single one of the apostles was considered the first pope in his day. Not a single one of them was considered above the other. Some like to say, well, Peter was... Blah, blah. Well, Peter was certainly an avid speaker. But we also remember Paul, the last of the apostles... When Peter shows up in Galatia and he's living in a way that is inconsistent with the gospel, what does Paul do? He confronts him right there to his face, right in public, because he's not the man. He's not unassailable. He's not above reproach. He's not above failure. He's not without sin and without weakness. There was only one without sin and without weakness. And that is he who alone always remains as the true head of the church. And I ask you, who is that? That's Jesus Christ. He remains the chief shepherd. He remains the head overall. In 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 1, when Peter is writing to the exiles who are dispersed, it says this, 5.1 of 1 Peter, I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ. So he understands he had, he had a role. He was an elder in a church just like these individuals are elders in their church. Now there is going to be a difference between apostolic eldership and other eldership okay there's going to be a measure of difference that we're going to look at but nonetheless the role that they served was significant first in second john one when john writes to the elect lady he writes um the elder to the elect lady. When he writes in 3 John. The elder to the beloved Gaius. One of the things that these men recognized. Was their specific roles. And responsibility in the context of the church. And oftentimes, when they're appealing to others. Who are serving in that capacity. They're appealing to them as fellow elders. In that, in that wonderful uh, capacity. Further. In Acts chapter 11. It says this, verse 29 and following. So the disciples, there, there was a drought that was taking place in the region of Jerusalem and Judea. So there was a lot of need and struggle during this season. And it tells us in verse 29 of Acts 11. So the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. Now, wait a second. They sent it to the elders, not to the apostles? 
In Acts 15, later on, they're going to go there to figure out how the law is to be rightly understood and handled in the new covenant context. They're going to try to figure out is, is the, the circumcision and obedience to the law of Moses going to be what is required moving forward or not. And they will go there and they will meet with the apostles and elders. But here it mentions only the elders. Does that mean it's not the apostles? Of course it's the apostles. The apostles themselves were the first elders that are there serving in that church. And remember this also. In, the, in, this, in this day and age, in Acts chapter 4 verse 32, there was not a needy person among them. For as many as were land owners of land and houses, they sold the proceeds and they of what was sold and brought the proceeds of what was sold. So I'm going to look at a few things regarding the early elders. Now the first thing is significantly apostolic, but it has additional application. The apostles as the leaders of the first church established in Jerusalem. This is the first church established on the preaching of the gospel and the baptism of those who have repented and come to Christ. This church is established in that place under their leadership. And they are the ones who determined and declared all doctrine. Doctrine was not a matter of discussion, not a matter of debate. Doctrine was that which was declared and set forth by the apostles. Again, let's look at the scriptures and see how this plays out. First of all, you just go back a couple chapters and you see in Acts chapter 4 verse 2. Reminds us of this simple thing. The early church, as they were there, it says they devoted themselves to what? The apostles' doctrine or the apostles' Teaching to the breaking of bread and prayer. So in the early church, those who all that was being committed to, what, whether there are or are not additional teachers, whether there are or are not various prayer groups gathering, the singular commitment with regard to doctrine, it was being declared and determined by who? The apostles, they stuck with the apostles doctrine. Now that should not surprise you because go back with me briefly to the gospel of John. In the gospel of John. Very important in John chapter 14 through 16. There are a number of things that are said in those chapters where Jesus is speaking to the 12. And we mess it up a lot of times. Because things that he's specifically saying to these men. We pretend he's talking to you and me. Now it bears relevance to you and me. And I'll explain how. But he's talking to them. First of all with me in John chapter 14. Verse 24 and following. He says whoever does not love me. Does not keep my word. And the word that you hear. Is not mine. But the father. Who sent me. Now Jesus says this all the time. Everything that he says. Has been what? Given to him. What the father has given him. That he speaks. So we know that the message of the incarnate savior. Was a divine. Authoritative infallible message because it was the word of God Almighty through the Son. Right? Very clear. But then he goes on. Jesus is not done. These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. Want to emphasize something. Who's Jesus talking to? Is that to me? These things I've spoken to you while I'm still with you? I wasn't with him. I wasn't born yet. You would have to go forward more than one, almost 2,000 years before I even come onto the scene. 
So when we're looking here at what's being said in verse, uh, verse 25 and following, these things I have spoken to you while I am still with you, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. So that's very important. Why was the early church committed to apostolic doctrine? For the same reason that Christ was committed to only speak the things the Father gave to him. The Father gave to the Son so that everything he declared was the word of God. Christ appointed for himself 12 apostles. Those are those who would be sent delegated as his messengers and endowed with his authority. And they would receive the spirit in a way that it says would teach them all things and bring to remembrance all the things that I've spoken to you. So those who are going to be given accurate and infallible doctrinal instruction by directly by divine activity is these apostles. Jump over with me. We see more of this in chapter 16. Chapter 16 verse 12. Again Jesus begins this. Uh, prefaces this. Which should be a clue to us. But somehow we often miss it. I still have many things to say to you. But you cannot bear them now. John 16 verse 12. Now verse 13, when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. Isn't that glorious? You know what that means? If we want to be sure that something is true, we can take it from God's word. Because the, the New Testament is given to us by the authority of the apostles, by the authority of God the Son, by the authority of God the Father, through the instrumental working of God the Spirit. That's why we call this the Word of God. Now, it's important to know this. I will guide you into all truth. Too many, sadly, too many believers have, have claimed that as a promise to them. But then if he's going to guide you into all truth and you into all truth and you into all truth and you and you both differ on this and differ on this interpretation and differ on gifts and differ on end times, then um, so who's he guiding into all truth? <laughs> if this was and I and there's a big part of me that wishes it was a promise to every believer, would we have denominations? We wouldn't have all these different denominations. We would be all holding exactly the same doctrine because he would guide us into all truth. We would never have doctrinal disagreements. And one of the things you'll find astounding as you look at the scriptures. Now there is in Galatians, I spoke of it, between Paul and Peter. There is a confrontation that takes place. But it's not over doctrine. It's over not living in accordance with the doctrine that is true and that you hold to. There, there is no place in the scriptures where there is a confrontation or a disagreement over doctrine by any of the apostles amongst themselves. They are in absolute consistent unity. They never get in arguments. Paul and Barnabas will ever, later separate. But that's over a difference of the fitness of John Mark to travel with them in ministry. So believer, even apostles would differ on personal matters. And they would differ in terms of how they lived things out. But in terms of their doctrine, they were one and the same because it was not coming from them. By the grace of God, Christ had committed and committed unto them that the spirit would lead them into all truth. He would tell them all things. He would remind them of all that he told them while he was with them. I'm still in John 16, now verse 14, or still verse 13. The spirit of truth, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own authority. So even the spirit who's coming, 
Is he going to say something different than Jesus? Different than the Father? Oh, brothers and sisters, let that be a warning. Because there are churches here and there that will claim the Spirit just moved in a particular way. And the Spirit just spoke in a certain way. And it differs with the Scriptures. It shows different values. It shows different actions. It shows different passions, different priorities. Is it right? Will the Spirit ever lead us in a different direction than Christ? Not at all. Oh, God, help us with that. He said, it goes on. For he will not speak of, on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And so that's why, again, it's often interesting how our dear brothers and sisters in Christ will attribute certain communication to the Spirit as if it's the Spirit speaking independent of the Godhead. That, that doesn't happen. <laughs> he will not speak on his own authority. This, the Spirit told me this. Not, this isn't from God. This isn't in the Bible. This isn't anything Jesus said. But the Spirit told me, plug your ears, people. Don't listen to the rest of that. Goes on to say, whatever he hears, he will speak. He will declare to you the things that are to come. Verse 14, he will glorify me. I always want to, don't, don't want to miss that. Where the Spirit is powerfully active, Christ is predominantly glorified. Means you'll hear more of Christ where the Spirit is powerfully active. Because one of the intent goals of the Spirit is to what? Glorify Jesus. And when Jesus is supplanted somehow because of the supposed influence and emphasis on the Spirit, something's amiss, brothers and sisters. Because the Spirit is coming with an intent to glorify Christ. He will take what is mine and declare it to you. Again, for these disciples, here's the privilege. Well, what if Jesus didn't teach them about this issue and this circumstance and this doctrine? He's not done. He has many things to say to them, but they couldn't yet bear it. But he's going to keep teaching them. The Spirit's going to teach them. Well, so the Spirit's teaching them, not Jesus? Well, uh, he's going to take what is mine and declare it to you. Jesus is still teaching them by means of the Holy Spirit. You see it? Okay. Goes on to say, all the Father has given are mine, and therefore I say he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Then he reminds them, a little while you will see me, and then no longer. And again a little while, and you will see me. Is that us? That wasn't us. That was really them. They would see him, then he would be crucified and buried, and it's like, He's gone. Some begin to leave Jerusalem. And then wait, he's back. There is a sense in which we didn't see him, but we are waiting to see him and waiting for him to come. But the, the apostles are the declarers of all doctrine through the spirit, by the authority of Christ. They're the determiners of doctrine for the church, which is why be careful when people try to pit one against another. You know. Be careful when someone tries to elevate red letters over black letters. And for those who don't know what that means, there are some publishers who translate Bibles in a way where they put what they believe are the words of Christ, translated into English, in red letters and the words of others in black letters. And there's even a parade of people who roam around out there calling themselves red letter Christians. I'm a red letter Christian. But somehow is better because we hold only to the teaching of Christ. A problem. Everything that the apostles taught is the teaching of. So then when you deny the black letters, what are you doing? No, see, what you're doing is Jesus said, there's many things I desire to tell you, but you cannot bear it right now. You're not listening to all the rest of the things Christ desired to tell them. You're cutting it off and saying, no, I only want the basic things that they could understand before they had the Spirit. Really? Of course, you would never, no one would ever go so far as to say that audibly because that would sound very, very foolish. But practically, that's what's happening. So we have that Ephesians 2.11 or 2.20 says this, of the church, it is built on the foundation of, of the apostles and prophets. Now in this particular passage. Apostles and prophet. The and serves like a hyphen. It's called a hindiotis in, the, in, in language. The, uh, the prophetic apostles. That is built on the foundation. With Christ as the chief cornerstone. 
Well, someone says, what about 1 Corinthians 3.11? It says, no one can lay another foundation other than the foundation that is laid, and that is Jesus Christ. So who's the foundation? Jesus Christ or the apostles? I ask you. Uh, Jesus Christ and his apostles. Because all that they would be led into in terms of truth and all that they would then teach would come from where? Christ. And thus have his authority. That's why, the, that's why the early church was committed to the apostles' doctrine. In Titus chapter 1 verse 9 through 11, it says of someone who would subsequently become an elder, like the early apostles served as the first elders. Now note this, an elder such as myself and Douglas out here. We are not promised that God will lead us into all truth. So I cannot sit back and expect direct information to be given to me and then I just say it. I know that God led these apostles into all truth. So if I want to be faithful to the truth, I have to go to the truth. I'm responsible for that. It says this in Titus 1.9. He, the one who would be an elder must hold firmly to the trustworthy word as taught. Now it's important to note this. The trustworthy word as taught does not mean as taught by my denomination. Which is how a lot of people practically apply that. You know, as taught in my church. Well, no, no, no. As taught when... when Paul is writing these things to Timothy and to Titus, who are the original teachers in the church? Who are the original disciples in the church? I remind you, when that, that uh, uh, great commission initially goes out, Jesus is speaking to those apostles. And he says what? Go therefore into all the world and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Yeah. That, to carry out the task of teaching them to observe all that I've commanded, that's really not what everyone in the church is going to do. James goes so far as to give a little bit of warning. Not all of you should become teachers. Because there's a warning. Strict teachers will incur a stricter judgment. But someone who's going to be an elder had to be one who holds firm to the trustworthy word as taught. And that's what it re we've got to get back to. As taught by the word of God. As taught by Christ to the, his apostles. As taught by Christ through the Holy Spirit. To his apostles as taught by his apostles to the early church as they were committed to what? The apostles doctrine. How dare they say that and not the doctrine of God. Not the doctrine of Christ. What do you mean? How? It's the same thing. Because as apostles they had that position. Further as taught so that he may be able to instruct those in sound doctrine. And also rebuke those who contradict it. Second John uh, verse 9, it's only a one chapter book, says this. And this is a strong warning in the early church. Everyone who goes on ahead or runs on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ. Which is another way of saying the apostles doctrine. Because all that they had, the spirit would declare to them the things of Christ. Hope you're following Everyone who runs ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching. Now, this teaching was already established when? Back here in the apostolic days of the church. If someone comes and does not bring this teaching. Funny. Without pointing out names, there's an event that's been going on recently around the internet, and they're even promoting an upcoming conference. And the and the statements that they keep trying to say is, "Look, 
it seems the church is having less and less influence and less and less impact in America. And we've got to get this through our heads. If we keep doing things the same way, the church is going to die. We need to think of new ways and new, the blue, and, and it just goes on and on. It's like, well, now, definitely if there are things the church is doing that are caught up in practical traditions of man, those should be reconsidered and rethunk. All right? We do need to think about that again. But regarding the gospel, regarding to true doctrine, Regarding how a church is to be ordered. How Christians are to live. Those things don't change. They don't change from country to country. They don't change from culture to culture. They don't change from season to season. I loved how this morning in 1 Corinthians 4. Paul talks about how he's sending Timothy to the, them. To remind them of the things that he teaches. In all of the churches. There wasn't, the doctrine was never designed to accommodate men's particular inclinations and interests. It is that faith, as it says in Jude, once for all delivered to the apostles, as I would say. And so we keep going. Such a strong warning that is there. Secondarily, as we move on, that not only were the apostles the ones who were the determiners of all doctrine, the apostles as the first church elders were those who were responsible for all of the church resources. It's so interesting the way that it unfolds in chapters 4 and 5. It says in chapter 4 verse 37, uh, people would, they sold a field that belonged to him. This is Barnabas. And brought the money. And the phrase there is. Laid it at the apostles feet. Secondarily. In verse, before that actually in verse 35. Uh, landowners were selling their property. And proceeds verse 35. And they laid it at the apostles feet. Chapter 5 verse 2. Of Ananias and Sapphira. They sold their property. Brought part of it. And brought only part of it. And they laid it at the apostles feet so we see this phrase being stated over and over laid it down at the apostles feet which is an entire relinquishing here this is for the service of god this is for where it is needed men this is entrusted to you make wise and faithful use of this and uh, we also see that uh, the scriptures do remind us as you move on forward in in first timothy Chapter 5, verse 17, it says, let the elders, that is, again, the pastors, multiple pastors in a single church, let the elders who rule well, so it speaks about their responsibility to rule well, say, be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor, or particularly those who labor in preaching and teaching now again i think it, 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 our minds are going to be like what does this mean double honor yeah it's a confusing phrase does it it does not mean as some might be tempted to think you you honor some men this much but these men double it you know now that's a temptation for a man in my position because if you get people thinking like that about you and you get to start to feel pretty good about yourself. But that's not the intent of this passage here. The intent of this passage is, is quite different. And actually, you'd be interested to note this. The phrase that they would sell it and then lay the proceeds, the proceeds at the feet of the apostles. The word for proceeds is the same root as the word for honor. Okay, so generally speaking, in this historic cultural context, the call for honor. Now, they were to treat one another with honor, honor one another as better than themselves. But it was those who were going to serve as elders, particularly those who labored. That is, they would give themselves to the point of exhaustion in terms of study and preparation and ministry of the word and prayer. That they would be double honored. That would be the sense of the respect that is, that is due to one another as brothers and sisters in Christ and as a faithful man of God. But secondarily, you don't muzzle the ox while he's treading. In other words, he who preaches the gospel will live by the gospel. The second honor was that he would be compensated. Back up for a moment, things you oft don't think about. What was Jesus' 
career path. Anyone? Well, someone's going to say a carpenter, and I'll ask you, what did he make? Did he make houses? Did he make furniture? Do we have any account of him making houses and furniture? Yes, we know his father, at least the one who served as his father in this world, Joseph, was a carpenter. And it wasn't terribly uncommon for a son to follow in his father's footsteps. So are you assuming that when Jesus traveled around during his earthly ministry, he met his financial needs by occasionally whittling something? Or, you know, well, the scriptures do not say that. But when we look at the extent of his ministry, it's highly doubtful because he was constantly engaged in what? Teaching and preaching. Now, does teaching and preaching generally fill your pockets or your stomach? No. So then how would they eat or how would they survive? There would have to be contribution. Well, how, where does it say details about that? We don't have details, but we do know they received contributions because a unique man was appointed the privilege of carrying the purse. You know who carried the money bag for the apostles? Judas. Sometimes I look at that and think, what? I mean, Jesus knows what's in everyone. He knew from the beginning the one who would betray him. Judas, we not only know that he carried the money bag, but the scriptures tell us he pilfered from the money bag. And so when there was opportunity for somebody to give large and they didn't, he was upset because he knows that the larger the givings, the easier the skimmings. Without anybody taking particular notice now, Judas should have been aware of this simple reality. Maybe none of the apostles would ever know what he did. Does he fool God? Does Christ not know? Will he escape? Does, does he think he got away with it? Because He would think he got away with it because no one caught him. There is no getting away with anything in this world. There's nothing that's unseen. There's nothing that's unknown. We are all accountable to God. What we want to see even further, he, he, he reminds them in 1 Corinthians 9, he speak, Paul speaks of the fact that are only Barnabas and I the ones who don't have to work for, or who have to work for a living? Because what Paul did tend to do, which was unique to him, when he would be in a particular place, and the monies he had ran out, he would exercise what was a very marketable trade in tent making. Okay? And so he would do it. Now, as he would do that, we know from other passages, he would use the money he's making to support his helpers so that they could continue full-time in the teaching and preaching ministry, so that the ministry was not hindered, but they did not have the practical, marketable skill that he had. And so he just didn't rise himself up in the minds of others. But when he would receive gifts, generous gift from the Macedonians, generous gift from the church at Philippi, then he would be able to set aside that work of tent making and give himself more actively to the ministry. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, he's explaining why are we the only ones? So the early apostles themselves, as they're distributing the money according to the need, as weird as it may be, you know who's among that list of needs? They are. And, and, and so there's a lot of things that, that, that they are responsible to God for. And as those, as those duties welled up, and as the number of people swelled, they were not able to attend to all that is necessary. Now, were they probably intentionally overlooking the widows who were Hellenistic? Very doubtful. But also you would note this, there would probably, our best understanding historically is there were far more Hellenistic widows who would be in need than the, than the local widows being in need. Here's the reason why. Those who were from that Judean region living there, someone becomes a widow, 
You know who's there to take care of them? Their son, their daughter, their family. And so, so the, the number of those local widows in need is going to be significantly less than those who had been transplanted. And it was a common thing because of even the old covenant responsibility to take care of widows. Oftentimes when a woman was widowed in a distant land but of Jewish origin, she's making her way back to Jerusalem because she knows that in that place she has to by law be taken care of. Okay? So they, they get to this situation and, and they're, they're trying to handle all of these things and it, it's facing a tremendous burden on them and they're not managing it perfectly. And so as a result of that, they put in place steps to be able to manage it more effectively. One of the things that, uh, that we see in the way that all of this unfolds, Titus chapter 1 verse 7 also gives this very helpful terminology. Titus chapter 1 verse 7 speaks. So again, it's in the structure of who will be appointed elders and leaders in the church. It says, for an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant, quick-tempered, a drunkard, violent, or greedy for gain. And again, it's important to understand what was a steward in that day and in that age. Now, we don't generally have stewards, so it's a simple thing. There would be a master, a landowner, and he would be, everything would belong to him. But he would oftentimes, and, and in Luke 16, Jesus gives an example of this happening. The master goes away on a journey, and he leaves the responsibility with the steward. There it's translated manager, but it's the same word. And that individual is now entrusted with all of the resources of the master. He has to divvy it out to everyone to whom it's due. He has to, he's responsible for all of those details. And when the master comes back, the master, he's going to have to give account to the master and have proven to be a faithful steward. And, and so he's, he's got that absolute responsibility entrusted to him. Here are these resources that the master has given. And I've got to answer to him for every single thing that I've done with it. Now, he did not, he wasn't going to go around and, and form uh, subcommittees of the other uh, um, the other slaves and servants saying, okay, the master's entrusted this money to me. What do you think we should do with it? You know, that, that's kind of the way that churches go on today. He's also not going to be giving them a, a detail. Do you know how much money the pastor's given to me? It was this amount. Now it's been three months and it's whittled down to this amount. It, no, no, no. That's not their worry, their concern. Each of them have a specific task, a specific requirement, and a spe specific appointment. The steward is responsible to, to maintain those resources that are entrusted to him. It gives, it gives a freedom that each of the saints, for example, get the privilege of committing themselves to all the things that they are to be involved with. Seeking Christ. Keeping their eyes fixed on him. Loving one another. Serving one another. Seeking to encourage, to edify, to uplift so that our, the focus of the saints, we don't get caught up in all this nonsense of, 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 of budget meetings and designated this. and de God is the one to whom all are responsible for, for the individuals and trust, resources entrusted to us, whether it is in the home or whether it is in the church. And ultimately, the leaders of the church should not be going to you in your homes and saying, I want an account of all of your finances, every cent that you've made. I want to know all of your... That's not their position. Their responsibility is over you in the Lord and to be faithful declarers of the doctrine delivered by the apostles and faithful stewards of the resources entrusted to them. That they would go to the areas and places where needed. They're responsible in every aspect and every part of that to God. Thirdly, they are to shepherd the sheep. The elders are to shepherd the sheep as those who are overseers. It says this. Remember the language of Jesus in John as he speaks to uh, Simon Peter. 
He says to him repeatedly when they'd finished breakfast in verse 15 and following, do you love me more than these? He says, yes, I do love you. And what does he say? Feed my lambs. Do you love me more than these? Lord, you know that I love you. Tend my sheep. What is he again calling him to? That responsibility as a shepherd. The term that we often speak of for pastors. What are their responsibility to do? To care. To care for them. To protect them. To feed them. To watch over and all of these things. It is not to be taken lightly. That's why it says this. Paul called all of the elders from Ephesus in Acts chapter 20. And the, he called in verse 17. It says he sent to Ephesus and called the elders to come to him. And he told these elders this in verse 28. Pay close attention to yourselves. Not just pay close attention to the flock. You pay close attention to yourselves. First of all, never forget this. There's a reason why there's a plurality of elders. You're accountable to each other. You pay close attention to yourself individually. And you pay close attention to yourselves. You hold yourselves mutually accountable. It wasn't, it, it wasn't that a single Judas. Or it wasn't that a single uh, in the New Testament church. It wasn't that they didn't lay it at the feet of Peter. They didn't lay it at the feet of James. They laid it at the feet of the apostles so that they would be able to what? Hold each other mutually accountable stewards of the resources of God. Here it reminds them of this. Pay close attention to yourselves and to all the flock over which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. Here's the, there's still that rem reminder. You are to care for and oversee the church you're to oversee the flock but remember that flock you have a responsibility for but those are not your sheep they're his sheep and so yes you have a responsibility before him of that flock but but you don't have carte blanche you have responsibility and you answer to him for everything that you're doing and so he reminds them of this, of who they actually belong to. I know, in verse 29, after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. So you got to watch out. Fierce wolves will come in among you. Now, he's warning this to the elders, not sparing the flock. They're going to come to get them. And worse than that, verse 30, it says... And among your own selves. Not from outside the church. From inside the church. And not only from inside the church. But even from potentially within church leadership. Men will arise speaking twisted things. To draw disciples off after themselves. Twisted things means they're not saying the same thing. They're not sticking to the message once for all given. They're adding to it. They're twisting it. They're making it somehow their own. They cannot do this. And they're commended to the grace of God. So they've got to be careful for that. Because people are going to come. And they're going to try to take advantage. People are going to come. And they're going to try to manipulate. They're going to try to twist. In 3 John. That's actually why it's written. Diotrephes. That John is writing to. It says he likes to put himself first. And does not acknowledge our authority. But he'll see what happens when we come. Even as kind of we're looking at Paul at the end of 1 Corinthians 4 says. Alright when I come. Do you want me to come with a rod. Of discipline or do you want me to come with kindness. How do you want me to come. Hmm. So further, you know, as this unfolds, I just uh, closing aspects in the selection of these men that would be put to serve this role. The priority that cannot be set aside is the prayer and the ministry of the word. That is the greatest priority of church leaders. And that cannot be compromised for anything. And if, if any administrative leadership bookkeeping things are impinging upon that then help needs to be provided so that the priorities are maintained and uncompromised. But I want you to note this, and, and just in, in closing, as they select these, men's, these men, these men, it says, 
very clearly in this passage that we will choose these certain men and they will be appointed to this duty. That's at the end of verse 4. They will be appointed to this duty. The singular duty that these men are, are, are entrusted with is what? They're going to be responsible to look after the needs of the Hellenistic widows. Not more, not less. It's a very specific. This is the thing. Now, later they could assign others to other duties. As the need is. But what's the, I want you to notice in this, and I'm just for your own thoughts as we bring this to a close today. As you read through this, the complaint was given. The elders determined the course and the correction. They didn't say, let's form a committee and see how we ought to address this problem. Then let's have a committee that will address how that committee is addressing this problem. No, 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 no. They said, this is the course of action. Who determined how many men would be appointed to this duty? They determined that as well. We want seven men. Who determined what the qualifications would be? They did. They, they needed men of integrity, of good repute. Men of piety, full of the spirit and the fruit of faithfulness. Men of ability, wisdom and skill. So they had to, they're the ones who set... The course, they chose the number of men, they set what are the qualifications for the men, and they said, look, uh, the ESV says pick, but the actual word is look amongst yourselves. Find some men that, 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 that meet these qualifications. We don't ultimately know if, if, if they in, the apostles ended up interviewing 25. We have no idea, but we do know that seven were ultimately appointed. Look for among yourselves seven who meet these positions whom we will appoint. So even the appointing, was it done by the church? The appointing was done by those men with entrusted stewardship within that congregation. They made the final approval. They, they chose to make use of the saints, their wisdom, their experience, their knowledge of one another to help facilitate finding these men more quickly. They, they were open in terms of the, this is the direction that we're going to deal with this complaint that's taking place. But it was quite clear. What do you guys think we should do to deal with this? No. It is, we recognize this complaint has come. We need to deal with it. This is how we're going to deal with it. This is how you all are going to help us. This is your role. Help us find men to fill these seven positions that we will give responsibility for this duty. So, simple summary of the things we've looked at today. Early eldership. The apostles. They were the determiners, deliverers, and defenders of sound doctrine. They were responsible for all of the church's resources. They were the shepherds of Christ's sheep, overseers of a flock to feed, care, protect, guide, and discipline. They also had the privilege as stewards to delegate duties that would distract them from their highest priority. And they designated the specific duties that would be done. And note this, all would be done under the oversight and with responsibility to the chief shepherd. And they would not sway away from their ultimate priorities. Because verse 7 says. The word of God continued to increase. They delegated those duties. And they continued to preach the word. And God continued to draw many to himself through the gospel. Let's pray. Lord so much. In your word. So powerful. And it is our desire God. That in everything that we would not. Think in a way that seems right to man. Lord, that we would not compare our uh, things with uh, the baggage of our, our businesses or our earthly governments or our, uh, human patterns. But God, we thank you that you've given us your word that begins to unfold for us a clear pattern and simple order for church leadership. So that you remain the focal point. And so that each of your, those who are your children and your servants are given the opportunity and privilege to give themselves to the calling that you've appointed in each one of our lives. To love you. To serve you. To love one another. To serve one another. 
God, we pray that you would just continue this work. We are thankful for the love of God that is ours in Christ Jesus. We're thankful for the way that you have uh, simplified things within church structure so that we can keep our eyes fixed upon you. God, may you be exalted and glorified in all things. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.